You know, I need to tell you something. You are a fine-looking group of people. You really are. You're the best people I know. You really are. I'm so thankful for you. I joked a bit about being sort of off the bench and into this, but uh, I am very conscious that allowing someone into your pulpit, thinking of pastors too, Brittany and Ryan, is a bit like loaning your car to somebody. You really need to trust them. And so to Helen and the worship group and uh, the board and the pastoral team, I am grateful for the opportunity to preach every now and then. And uh, you'll be seeing a bit more of me over the next couple of months. I think I've got two more dates in, uh, before Christmas. I was also thinking it's interesting, isn't it, when you're little, Christmas a year away is a long ways away. Some of you are closer to my age, and a year kind of goes boom, like that. Suddenly it's Christmas again. It's interesting how it does speed up as you go along. Third and final thing I want to say, you may, I, I don't think any of you are watching me, but you may have noticed me as I stand in there, and if you saw my hand, it goes like this. Yeah? Um, you don't know me very long before. If I'm nervous or uptight or stressed, uh, I have this really weird habit of, of rubbing. And it got to the point where my thumb and finger were getting kind of calloused. And so my wife Linda gave me a lovely little stone years and years ago like this. And uh, it's about worn down now, but that's what I was doing. Uh, not that I was nervous about you, but I think every time I'm privileged to preach, there's a sense of, of awe, if you will, that comes with that. And uh, this stone says, I love you. And so that reminds me of my wife who loves me, but also that God loves me. And so I come to you this morning in his name and with his help and to honor him. Before we turn to the message in the scriptures, let me spend some time with you in prayer. Uh, I was a pastor for 26 years, and the pastoral prayer, if you will, was a, an integral and important part of my ministry to be able to pray for my flock. And this morning, you're my flock and for our world is a privilege that pastors and clergy people have. So I invite you to, to bow your heads with me, and let's pray. Jeremy Taylor in the 17th century prayed this prayer. He said, Lord, teach us to pray often that we may pray oftener. And so we come to you now, God, Echoing his desire and his plea, Lord, teach us to pray that we may pray more often. Lord God, on this Sunday following the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, Lord, hear our prayers. God, help us to love others generously as you have loved us. Would you expand our imaginations to see the possibilities of reconciliation personally and corporately? And would you make us people of the truth? Lord God, where relationships have ruptured, may you bring repair. Where actions have damaged, may you bring healing. Where it seems our only dead ends, would you let us imagine and reimagine turning points? With you, we can find hope where we most long to see change, individually and as a family, make us instruments of your peace, healing, and reconciliation. Make us vehicles to bring your wholeness and your holiness into the lives of those we love and know well. 
and those we have even yet to meet. Lord, hear our prayer, and in your love, answer. Today we pause to give you thanks for the blessings that are part of our lives. To remember that every good and perfect gift comes from your loving hand and that we are stewards, not owners of these good things. Enable us willingly and joyfully to share the blessings that are ours with others nearby and far away. Lord, hear our prayers and in your love answer. We pray today for those in danger, pain, sorrow, or distress, for patients in hospitals and long-term care facilities, for those who are ill at home, for those who have lost or are in the difficult process of losing loved ones to illness or old age, for victims of abuse and mistreatment, for our brothers and sisters living in the shadow of or in the midst of war, famine, pandemic, fear. Lord, hear our prayers and in your love answer. For your church scattered and meeting around the world in our own nation, in our own city, and in this place, Lord, we pray. Help us to truly be the body of Christ for people, pastors, church leaders, church bodies. We ask your presence, your power, and your peace. For our own church, your church in this place called Skyview, we pray this morning for pastors, Stuart, Ryan, and Brittany, for their loved ones, for our church board and all those in places of leadership and responsibility, for all of those little children that we saw head off to Sunday school, for our community and for other churches that are meeting at this hour in this neighborhood, this city, this province, this country, and around the world, oh Lord, we pray. Lord, hear our prayers. And in your love, answer. Now God, our Father, hear our words said aloud as we pray together the prayer that Jesus commanded to us and taught his disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And amen. To those of you who were not familiar with that prayer, I apologize. I should have had it up on the screen and I forgot to do that. So that's my, my error, or my bad, as they say. For those of us who have grown up in the church, it just is almost second nature. But did you notice? It's always in the King James. I've tried to memorize it in other versions, and I can't make it work for me. 
uh, the bees and the vines and the vows. Uh, how strange. Well, let's turn to the Word this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And before I read them, I invite you to join me in this prayer for illumination, for an openness to the Spirit's voice as we read and look at the Scriptures. Would you pray with me? Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of the Holy Spirit, that as your Scriptures are read and your Word proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Reading from 2 or 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, this is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace Mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within your, you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Do not be ashamed, then, of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. And for this reason, I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know the one in whom I have put my trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. Hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. This is the word of the Lord. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which is committed unto him against that day. If you're my age, you remember the old gospel song probably. <laughs> God's promises are true and solid. Paul had been radically transformed. He was a changed man. He was no longer Saul but became Paul. The persecutor of Christ became a disciple and the powerful preacher of that same Christ whom originally he had sought to destroy. Paul spoke of the change as a miracle, an act of God's amazing grace. He was transformed. He was a changed man. His life became a living testimony to the love, power, and grace of God Almighty. The same Jesus that Saul once hated and persecuted was now Paul's Savior and Lord. The Jesus Saul had hated became Paul's greatest love. 
our lives too, transformed by that same Jesus, ought to reflect the same hope and same love and same commitment that defined the life of Paul. This is the fourth and final message in a series of messages that was set up before Pastor Stu went on sabbatical called Living Witnesses. And so I wrap this up and then we begin something new in a series next week. Living Witnesses. We are to share our testimony with the world we live in, work in, play in, study in, in word and in deed, to speak and to live out our commitment to Jesus, not only in word, song, and prayer, but also, and perhaps even more significantly, in work, action, and service. To be living testimonies. Even when we have no words, or words are not appropriate or even adequate, we are to speak by the way we live and act. What's your body saying? What's your, what are your lives saying? What is my life saying to the people that I encounter day by day, week by week? What am I saying to the clerk down at Superstore when I get my groceries? What's my life and my attitude and my actions saying? What are my actions and life saying to that driver in the F-150 that cut me off in the Deerfoot last week? Hmm. Um, what are our lives saying? What are we saying? Paul often called Timothy his child in the faith. And as a spiritual parent, he prayed for Timothy, taught and discipled young Timothy. He demonstrated in his words and actions the faith and ministry to which he believed he and Timothy had been called. And so this morning, I want to gently challenge us all as parents, grandparents, as brothers and sisters, as aunties and uncles, to consider what our lives are saying if they are to be living testimonies to those we meet and live with. I am convinced that we are called upon, commanded to be these living testimonies to our children and grandchildren, indeed to every child and adult we encounter. Whenever we hold a baptism or a dedication service in the church, we stand and pledge that we will support the little one or ones who are baptized or dedicated that we will model before them the life of Jesus. No, my point this morning is not to lay guilt on anyone at all, but simply to ask you to examine your hearts as I examined mine this week as I was writing this. And to ask yourself those hard questions and answer them quietly. You don't need to answer them to anybody else but you and God. Call to be living testimonies. And so this morning... I don't want to scare you, okay? I don't want to frighten you. I have four ideas about this. Four short ideas. So relax. Okay? Sometimes when the pastor says, oh, I've got four points this morning, people, oh my goodness. There goes the chicken in the oven at home. No, four short points. Just to let you muse a little bit on what I have to say. Four ways that we can fulfill this important, this holy calling patterned after the life of Paul and his relationship to young Timothy, the way that we can be living testimonies to those we encounter and live with. Let me lay them out for you briefly. 
2 Timothy 1, 1 through 4. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience as my ancestors did, when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Number one, the living testimony of prayer. My dictionary at home says that prayer is, quote, a solemn, serious, request for help or an expression of thanks expressed to God or an object of worship. It is a spiritual communion, conversation, with God or an object of worship as in supplication, thanksgiving, adoration. I like this best. Prayer is talking with God. That's pretty good. Prayer is talking with God. As followers of God, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we're commanded, we're not suggested, we're not even asked, we are commanded to pray regularly to God, to bring God our worship and praise, our thanksgiving, and our petitions, our requests. Now, it's been my observation over the years that if you love someone, you talk to them. Not rocket science, as they say. But if you love someone, and if they love you, you converse, you talk. You have to speak of your real love. Love involves communication. To talk and to hear. To speak and to be heard. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul opens this letter, as he does many of his letters, with words of thanksgiving and prayer. He speaks of Timothy, his beloved child. He wishes grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience. When I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Prayer was as much a part of Paul's life as breathing and eating. It wasn't something he put on and took off, I would suggest. It wasn't something that, oh, well, I guess I better pray. And that's kind of helpful. You know, I believe that when we think of someone in passing throughout the day, as we mention their name, as we draw a picture of them in our mind's eye, that is a form of prayer. The Lord's Prayer is formal and beautiful. To have times of prayer is really important to draw aside, to to find a quiet place, wherever that might be, and to speak with God and to listen to God. But prayer is so much more than just words. Prayer is really, I believe, an attitude. And so I suggest we need to ask ourselves, gently, do our children, our grandchildren, do our spiritual children, do our friends, know and understand that prayer is important to us, that it's an intimate part of our lives, and we pray for them regularly and passionately out of concern. This is the first element, I think, of our lives as living testimonies, are to be people of prayer and whatever that looks like for you. Now understand this, though. I am not talking about making a show of our prayers. Oh, Lord! No, that's not what I mean. 
I'll pick on preachers, but did you ever come across a preacher who has prayer voice? God only hears us if we speak bass. Tenors, you're out of luck. Now, there's that sense in which we can put on a holier-than-thou voice. Now, I don't want to put that down. I mean, prayer is prayer is prayer is prayer. But I'm not talking about making a show of our prayers. If we want to be noticed and recognized and affirmed, prayer and pride are like oil and water. What an oxymoron. I'm so proud I pray. Mm, nah. Don't think so. Don't think so. So we're not to be like the Pharisee in Jesus' story who prayed long and loud in public so that others might see him and hear him and so think him particularly holy and pious. Prayer is not about us being noticed or respected or applauded. I'll talk about him on the 23rd of October. I think my next chance to preach, but that's the passage I've been assigned. No, it's not about that. But do our loved ones, do our friends know that we pray? Not so they can say, oh, look at Doug, he prays. No. But do they know that we pray for them? I hope they sense that, understand that. I hope we feel free enough with our kids and grandkids and say, hey, you know, I'm praying for you. Now, that can be a trite sort of saying, but it's really not if we are praying for them. <sighs> well, Christ commands private prayer to go to our closet, which is fine for me. We have a walk-in closet at home, but, you know, some, maybe harder for some of you. But to go someplace alone and pray. Christ commands that, to pray in private. I still think it's significant and encouraging for those we pray for to know that we're praying for them. It helps me a lot to know that I have people praying for me, and I know that I do. It means a lot to me, especially in those times when things are a bit difficult. There's something powerful about hearing someone pray for you by name. Pastor Ryan spoke one day about his grandfather who he happened to walk in on in their living room of the grandparents' home to find his grandfather on his knees, in that case, praying aloud and mentioning Ryan's name. He said, I didn't, didn't know whether granddad ever knew that, but he said, whoa, that meant something. Testimony, a living testimony, a testimony of prayer. Secondly, how about a living testimony of blessing? Blessing. Verses 5 through 7, and I think in the interest of time, I better not read them. You can read them on your own. But they talk about how Timothy has been blessed. A blessing, here's my dictionary again, is, quote, a thing conducive to happiness or welfare, a special favor, mercy, or benefit, particularly from God. It is something spiritual and sometimes physical and visible. Someone said that blessing, and I like this again, is a little gift from heaven. Isn't that neat? I like that. A blessing is a little gift of heaven. And to bless someone is to offer to them a little gift from heaven. It's a pretty good gift. We need to physically and verbally speak weeds of blessing into the lives of those around us as often as we are able. Again, not so that we might show off but simply that they might know that we wish God's best for them, which I think is what a blessing is. And so, my friends, I wish God's best for you, whatever that looks like for you. And it's different for all of us. 
but may you be blessed. May you have God's best for you, whatever that looks like. The second element of a living testimony is to be a conduit, a channel of God's blessing on those and to those around us, to bless them in our prayers and in our words and in our actions, to be living channels of blessing. Blessings were so important that Paul could remember their names, those who blessed young Timothy, Lois and Eunice, a mother and a grandmother. Remember, states Paul to Timothy, where you've come from. Recall those who believe in you, because that's sort of what a blessing is about as well. If you've been blessed, so go and be a blessing to others. Paul reminds Timothy of his giftedness. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of hands, a sign of blessing. I'd like to imagine that Lois and Eunice laid their hands, gently laid their hands on young Timothy. Now, sometimes we parents would probably lay our hands not quite so gently. <clears throat> That's a whole other sermon and story. But I would like to suggest to you that Lois and Eunice laid their hands on young Timothy and prayed God's blessing on him. So did Paul as he blessed his young protege. On a very personal note, I remember my own late mother, when I was a little boy especially, walking by me and patting me on the head. Did your parents ever pat you on the head? Not bop you on the head, pat you on the head. And my mother would say, blessings upon thee. Now, I think that was partly just a saying, but you know, the more I think about it, the more I think that was real. I think my mom was saying something to me, blessings upon thee, blessings upon you. This may have been a simple sign of my mother's love for me, but I also think that underneath that love, God was speaking, even if she did not know, which she may or may not have, through her to me to say that I have been blessed by God, and oh man, have I been blessed by God in so many ways. That would be a whole series of sermons. God was speaking through her, testifying of her love for me, her belief in God's plan and purpose for me, and reassuring me of the fact that she prayed for me, which I know she did. I was blessed. And I hope that to Jennifer and Nathan and to Linda, to others that I know and others in my family, that my desire and my wish that they be blessed is real and believed. I want nothing more than I want that. That they would experience God's blessing and presence in their lives. Blessing others is a part of our living testimony. Thirdly, the living testimony of grace. Grace. One cannot read the New Testament without coming face to face with the awesome reality of God's grace. Were it not for God's prevenient grace, his grace that goes before us, none of us would come to him. And it's because of God's grace that it was said of the early Methodists, quote, these Methodists die well. God's grace at work, even at the end of their life. Pervenient grace, converting grace, grace for living, and yes, even grace for dying. The extension of God's grace to us. Grace is defined in Sunday school language as the unmerited favor of God, end quote. It means that we're getting something we don't really deserve, we can't buy, we can't merit, we can't earn. It's a gift, God's grace to us. 
And nothing we have done can separate us. Nothing we do can make God give us any more of it. God gives us his grace. The extension of grace to us comes through the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not grace that was cheap or, or, or easy to bestow. Richard Bonhoeffer spoke of cheap grace. I'm not talking about cheap grace, but I'm talking about God's gift of his son and his love and his grace at work and active in our lives. We're to live as people of grace and to be channels of God's grace and peace. It's all about these channels. We're to be things, conduits, pipelines that, that these things flow through. Prayer, grace, blessing. And so as God extends his grace to us, we're to extend grace, unmerited favor to others. Thank heavens that we don't get what we deserve most of the time. May we be people who don't give to others what they deserve. We need to think about justice and punishment and what that means and what that looks like. Realizing what we have received by God's free gift to us. As we live our lives with those we love, we must seek to be graceful and grace-giving people. Finally, here it comes. <laughs> the final living testimony is that of encouragement. Now, I have met people, none of whom are here, thanks be to God, who seem to have the spiritual gift of discouragement. You know any of them? They're not here. We need to be vehicles of encouragement of increasing courage, in essence is what it means, to buoy up people's courage. Because friends and neighbors, it takes courage to live in this world of ours. It does. In Paul's letters, there often contain teachings and warnings and rebukes, oh yes. But almost always, if not always, Paul inserts words of encouragement to those to whom he's writing. Even to those he's rebuking most soundly, he tries to encourage them. I do not want anyone to give up on this thing called faith or this thing called life because of the way that I act towards them or the things that I say to them. I don't want to be a discourager. I want to be an encourager. If you leave this, sermon, this, this place this morning discouraged, then God forgive me. And I mean that from the depths of my heart. I want you to leave encouraged. Encouraged with the presence of God in your lives. To encourage is to give or promote or renew courage. Paul wants to give hope in the face of difficulty and bring victory when defeat seems imminent. In Timothy's life, God wishes to do that in ours. Our lives and those of our loved ones will not be without challenge. Don't have, that's not rocket science either, is it? There are lots of challenges. Some of you have more than your share this morning. And for that, I wish you encouragement and increase in courage. Everyone needs to be encouraged at times. Everyone wants to give up on occasion. Please don't pet your hand up, but have you ever said, I quit? I'm done. That's all. I'm finished. Yeah, we all feel like that sometimes. God wants us to be encouraged, to have courage to go on, to have courage to move forward. And we are called to be channels of encouragement to others. And how we speak and act, let us seek by God's grace and with his help to be vehicles 
of encouragement to others. That's the fourth form or shape of our lives as living testimonies. We must pray that our lives will witness to God, to the God who brings courage. One, two, three, four, there they are. Let me offer one caveat what I've said about being living testimonies. We are responsible, commanded, and equipped to share a living testimony with others. But we are not able to command others' response. So mom, dad, grandma, grandpa particularly, if you sought to live out your faith as best you could in the life of your children or your grandchildren, and they have made the choice not to serve God at this time, or to walk away from God, you're okay. Do not beat yourself up. Be gentle with yourselves. Please. Again, if you leave here this morning and you think, oh man, I must have been a really lousy testimony. Don't do that to yourself. If you did the best you could, if you lived it out as well as you can, and still those that you have lived in front of choose not to, to respond to that in a positive way, I don't mean this harshly, but that is on their heads. You can grieve about it. You can keep praying for them, encouraging them, witnessing and testifying to them. But ultimately, we all make our own choice to follow God. That's what Wesleyan thought, Nazarene thought. That's where I live. I have responsibilities, but I'm not responsible for what you do with what you hear and know. And I really want to stress that for you who are parents who are saying, oh, I wish my kids were in the church, or I wish my kids were serving God. Grandparents, you just do the best you can and hope they see it. And God's Holy Spirit works in their lives. And who knows, never, never give up hope. Never. Because God acts, even if it takes longer than we would like him to. So there you go. That's my caveat. Please don't beat yourself up. Mahatma Gandhi lived in India in the last half of the 19th and the first half of the 20th century. I'm sure many of you have heard of Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi was a lawyer trained in England who experienced incredible persecution when he returned to his homeland in India. He was, if you will, the founder of the modern nonviolent resistance movement that Dr. Martin Luther King tapped into. And this convicts me. Some of you will know where I'm going to, going to go and what I'm going to say, but this is a quote from Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi was all his life a devout Hindu, but he was cognizant and well-learned in the things of Christianity. Here's what he said. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Ouch. That's living testimony. 
Is our living testimony, is the way we live, the way we talk, the way we act, the things we say, the attitudes we have, do they, as best we can, reflect what we know Jesus to want? Let me run that by you again. It just really causes pause for thought. I like your Christ, said Gandhi. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. The embodiment of being a living testimony is to be Christ-like in our words, our attitudes, our thoughts. It is not to be perfect. We make our mistakes. We blow it occasionally, for which we must ask forgiveness of God and many times of other people. But it is to seek as best we can by the grace of God and with the help of the Holy Spirit to live as Jesus would have us live. Because to some people, we're the only Jesus they're going to meet until they give their life to him. To quote a much overused, no less accurate saying, our walk must match our talk. A final illustration or two, and with that I stop. When we go to a restaurant and bow our heads to say grace, to ask God's blessing on the food, to give thanks, our server may well observe what we are doing. They may interrupt us with the fish and chips, or they may wait until we've got our heads back up, but nevertheless, they're watching sometimes. But I believe a bigger question is this. Do our subsequent actions, words, and treatment of that server reflect our faith or make a mockery of it? Do we treat the checkout person at Superstore with respect? Secondly, do our words and actions, do my words and my actions, with and to our family and friends and co-workers, really reflect the faith that I profess? Are we a follower of Christ on Sunday and someone very different Monday through Saturday? My late father was not a church-going man. He believed in God. He was a kind man in many ways. He was of that generation where he never laid a hand on me. He just had to look. <laughs> we have a dad like that. He loved me. Never said, I love you, because that wasn't part of really his generation. But I heard my dad say one time that the reason he didn't particularly go to church was that he saw his father, who was a pillar of the little church in the community in which they lived, be one way on Sunday and through the other five, six days of the week, he was something else entirely. My dad said, if that's what church is about, forget it. I don't ever want someone to say that about me. I don't ever want someone to say that about you. Let's pray. Heavy stuff this morning, Lord. I believe it is your stuff. I do believe it is what you wanted me to share. But Lord, I pray that in the midst of what may be a bunch of challenges, there will also be encouragement. Bless, O oh God, 
my brothers and sisters here in this church and beyond. Look on them with kindness and gentleness and love and grace and compassion. Make us instruments of your peace and of your blessing. Help me, O oh God, to walk the walk. So we thank you, and we trust you, and we are grateful to you. Bless each of my friends, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>